Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. If you're engaged in social media or you watch commercial television, you've probably come across semaglutide in the form, perhaps, of Ozempic, Wagovi, or Montjuro, or some other focus group-derived trade name yet to emerge in the marketplace. And boy, is that marketplace booming. Some years ago, I had ambitions for writing a book, and I pitched it to several people. And, you know, the way I framed it, it was going to be similar to this program. Practical advice, cutting through the hype, giving people news they could use about uh, science and nutrition, how to stay healthy. And I pretty much got a uniform response to the pitch was, is there any way you can make it into a diet book? Because that sells. Yes, it's true. The marketplace knows. People will pay serious money over and over again to lose weight. Okay, we've established that. And I think if you're paying attention to what's going on in the weight loss marketplace, uh, both Weight Watchers and local other dietary assistance programs are tearing their hair out in droves because they're losing clients. And what they are seeing is people moving to spending large amounts of monthly money out of their budget in order to slim down. Now, I've talked about these drugs enough on the program that I'm not going to spend any time on the science or the mechanism. All I'm going to say is that if you think there's a market in weight loss, just wait until the marketplace for longevity emerges in the next few years. Old people, well, that's a growth market because we are all getting older and are joining the ranks sooner or later. Drugs that keep us young and keep us healthy and prevent all of those senile changes in our joints and muscles. Now that's a growth industry. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on today's program right out of the box talking about some of the possible chemical targets that are emerging in the science discourse that are emerging in the scientific world that may very well prove to be products coming to a drugstore aisle near you. Some of these are made up of already approved agents, always a rapid route to market. That's how these weight loss drugs got here. They were approved for diabetes, and then the risks were accepted on the basis of diabetes is a pretty big risk. Obesity, too, when it's extreme, is a great health risk, but when it's minor or cosmetics, one has to, well, question the wisdom, shall we say, of their use. But the marketplace, of course, knows no wisdom, only the laws of supply and demand. And to a very small extent, perhaps, regulation. 
Ah, the fountain of youth. Well, we've been searching for it for a very long time, and many of you may remember a few years ago when the popular cultural tropes of longevity and vampirism collided after scientists at the University of San Francisco, the University of California in San Francisco, found that by continuously infusing the blood of young mice into old mice, they could rejuvenate the old mice. They functioned exactly if, as if they were young. One of the effects of the transfusions was that the number of stem cells and their growth factors, which can be measured by a simple blood draw, increased drastically in the old mice. From this emerged a theory that senile cells hang around in the body. These are old, decrepit cells that aren't really benefiting, and in fact, of course, hang around and increase in numbers as we age and contribute to inflammation. And perhaps even more destructively, secrete substances that can turn neighboring healthy cells senescent. So, aging is actually chemically contagious. Hmm. Well, is youth also chemically contagious? Perhaps. Unfortunately, for aging humans, while the young mice may not have much to say about the matter... Young humans are likely to object vehemently to having large quantities of their blood removed and infused into the elder generation. Furthermore, transferring blood is unwieldy and difficult and fraught with danger, really, compared to taking a pill. So clearly, we need a pill. Although I will say that the market has recently shown us that if the benefits are sufficiently compelling, the public can actually be brought to poking themselves with a needle on a regular basis as long as they see results quickly. But of course, if it were a pill, something you could take orally, that would be even more desirable. So I want to tell you about a study that was done last year at the Mayo Clinic uh, and a number of other United States laboratories uh, working in conjunction. The study shows, among other things, two elderly rodents, both the same age, from the same litter, but there are profound differences between them. It rather reminds me of those pictures of the agouti mice from maybe 10 or 15 years ago at this point, where you had one mouse that was thin and brown and another mouse that was mottled and white. They were from the same litter and had the same genetic mutation. Oh, the mottled and white one was also quite obese. So they really looked like two different species, but they weren't. They were siblings, litter mates indeed, one of whom had been fed folic acid, while the other had not. The mutation, essentially one that interfered with their ability to make a particular form of folic acid, made all the difference in the phenotype. Well, this photo or of the two mice had a similar psychological effect when you looked at it. These mice didn't look like they were from the same litter and like they were the same age. 
The one that had aged naturally was shrunken and wizened and looked old, while the other, which had been taking a anti-aging treatment for the duration of its lifetime, was had the pep of a teenager, lots of vibrance, and the difference was obvious. And that's just looking at the externals. It doesn't even come close to looking at what's going on microscopically in the blood, bone marrow, and muscles. Other researchers have reported that this same treatment changes the blood so much that as far as their blood tests are concerned, the older rats getting the drug morph from 109-week-old blood profiles to the older mice getting the drug morph from 109-week-old blood profiles to 30-week-old blood profiles. In these mice, the heart's blood-pumping cells work much better. The heart timing and the rhythm is much more like that of a young animal, capable of maintaining high levels of exercise. And indeed, you see healthy functional markers in all of the cells of the body when animals receive these agents. So, can we do it in humans? And the answer is, yeah, we can. So I'm going to tell you about a particular combination of a pharmaceutical and a nutritional that has emerged as a strong possibility for future drug development, let's put it that way. And uh, yeah, stay tuned because this one could be as big as Ozempic. It won't be hard to imagine that the earlier work on blood transfusion rejuvenation generated a search for what the factors were in the young blood that were not present in the old blood and what maybe the it factor was that performed the rejuvenation. And one of the compounds that emerged uh, to our awareness, if you will, was a compound called alpha-clotho. That's clotho with a K. Alpha-clotho is a a geroprotective protein, which can attenuate or even reverse the adverse changes of aging in multiple diseases that are associated with accelerated degeneration, you see a decline in alpha-clotho in the blood as part of the picture. It's also seen in age, and you see it at lower levels in rapidly aging mutants that have been designed for clinical study, or in humans with progeria, a hereditary condition that causes rapid aging. For the movie buffs out there, In the movie Blade Runner, the character Sebastian has progeria. He refers to it as accelerated aging. So, of course, being scientists, we also checked out what happens when you transfuse old blood into new mice. And as you might expect, the new mice actually get older, at least as far as their blood profiles and their activity levels concerned. It's not quite the picture of Dorian Gray level of rapid aging, but it's enough to suggest that there are factors in old blood that are actively 
well, let's just say taking you down. And this alpha-clotho also drops in animals where that's done. So the question is, if we can find agents that raise alpha-clotho, will we actually get that rejuvenation effect in humans? And in 2021 and 2022, that was done in a group of humans with a disease called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which from a clinical standpoint is scarring and stiffening of the lungs, which leads to difficulty expanding them and decreased exercise performance and pulmonary function. And indeed, when drugs that increase alpha-clotho were given to humans, we saw an increase of function in their pulmonary status. Their lungs essentially lost scar tissue and began to function more as they should. It turns out that one of those contagious aging compounds is interleukin-1-alpha. Now, interleukin-1-beta, we know about from COVID. It's one of the cytokines that causes inflammation. 1-alpha is a bit more obscure, and I know less about it, but uh, it also would be a pro-inflammatory agent. And increased inflammation is, in fact, the hallmark of aging. If you selectively target older cells using antibodies against the markers that older cells display, you do boost levels of alpha-clotho in mice and humans. This raises the possibility that it might be possible to create monoclonal antibodies literally against aging. Once you clear these senescent cells, the levels of alpha-clotho are restored, suggesting that it is the compounds secreted by the older cells that effectively accelerate and lock in the aging process. Periodic blood cleansing of old cells might therefore be a route to, if not immortality, at least substantially increased human lifespan. Let's talk a little bit about the drugs that were used in these studies. One of the drugs used in these studies is a natural product called quercetin. Regular listeners to the show will be aware that I recommend 1,000 milligrams of quercetin, 800 to 1,000, in two divided doses daily for the treatment of allergies, eczema, hay fever. And I also use it when I'm trying to help people who've been treated for cancer alter their cellular milieu to make it less hospitable to any residual cancer cells that might try to put down roots and grow in distant places like the bone marrow or possibly the brain. Kerosetin is derived from vegetable skins like onion skins and apple skins, primarily in the supplement world, and is widely used and fairly inexpensive. I wish I could say the same for the other agent, dasatinib, which is sold in the United States under the brand name Spry Cell. This is a category of drug called a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and it is FDA-approved for treatment of certain kinds of chronic myelogenous leukemia and acute lymphoblastic leukemia. 
It's, as I said, an oral agent, and it has a fair amount of toxicity. It's approved for the treatment of leukemia. Consider taking this drug long-term for anti-aging purposes. Well, let's just say that's probably going to be a bit of a barrier to effective marketing for the drug unless these uh, little problems can be ironed out with a little biochemical tweaking. Obviously, the dosing that's used in the scientific studies that I'm quoting here uh, would be of interest. You'll find it buried in the uh, indexes of this article, which I did not have uh, the ability to access due to the paywall. So I'm afraid I won't be able to share with you the doses of this drug, but I will share with you its price. The average cost in the United States is about $329 a day. On the other hand, because this is a life-saving cancer drug, other countries, like for example, India, uh, have uh, gotten the price down to about $4 a day, which if you're an Indian citizen and you're living on, say, $1,000 a year, that's still too much money. But nevertheless, it's more affordable for the uh, Indian Health Service to cover the treatment for the leukemia group. And again, economies of scale, right? If you make enough of it because there's a large enough market, you actually get to the point that you might be able to mass produce this stuff and offer it to the general public for a tidy fee, of course, because, well, God bless America, right? Capitalism does drive innovation. Anyway, that's a philosophical discussion that we're not going to have today. But this whole problem of aging bodies could conceivably go away entirely if we reach the Roy Kurzweil singularity of uploading our brains electronically into an interface, or rather through an interface into the big computer in the cloud. Sounds a little bit like an afterlife, doesn't it? Uploading to the cloud. I saw a t-shirt the other day that I thought was hilarious. It showed a picture of Moses, and uh, the caption said, Moses, the first man to use a tablet to download information from the cloud. So let's talk about brain-computer interfaces. And we're now on the 50th anniversary of the first use that anyone could find in the Internet of the term brain-computer interface. I'm thinking that term was probably coined in or around the time that Michael Crichton's second book, The Terminal Man, was published in 1972. So give yourself the Professor Peabody Wayback Machine Prize, if you remember that one. Sherman. All right, so let's talk about what's up with modern computer interfaces. And this is another big race in the market right now. Brain-computer interfaces are definitely undergoing a large adaptive radiation at the moment. And you may have heard of the name Elon Musk. Well, the guy who owns a spaceship company and founded Tesla also is the head of the world's best-funded neurotechnology startup, Neuralink. That man does get around. Several companies today 
have equivalent missions to develop assistive technology that either restores movement and or communication capabilities to people who have lost these through paralysis-causing injuries or diseases. Gaming is also a great market target for commercial companies. If you could directly detect the user's brain activity, what a mass market would that be? You know, it used to be tune in, turn on, and drop out. Well, I guess now it's plug in, drop down, and disappear. The real problem when it comes down to this is physics and the skull. The skull is thick. It's a pretty good damper for electrical signals. It makes it hard to read them at the level of nuance that's going to be required to decode thoughts, or rather transform thoughts into content on the outside. Really, the electrodes up until the 90s had to be implanted directly into the brain. And you can use uh, EEG for controlling external devices, but uh, there's a time lag of milliseconds, and this is not good enough for gaming, or for that matter, the kind of rapid back-and-forth communication that would be required to run a hand or an arm, or for that matter, a rocket ship. But rather than putting an electrode into the brain, what about putting it on the surface of the brain, on top of the meninges? That only requires drilling a very small hole and perhaps having a thin membrane of some polymer that had a bunch of pickup electrodes on it that could both receive and send signals to the underlying tissue. So just to give you a sense of the resolution, in an EEG, we're picking up brain waves, and the resolution of that is that brain wave that you're picking up with a single electrode represents uh, several square centimeters of brain activity all averaged out. With these implantable surface electrodes, you can get the resolution down to a couple of square millimeters, which allows a much better resolution. An analogy might be the very, very first digital cameras compared to the digital camera available in a state-of-the-art Apple or Android phone. Just orders of magnitude difference in terms of resolution. That difference gets us pretty close to thought reading, or at least intention reading. The device probably knowing that you're going to move your right arm before your uh, consciousness actually knows that you're going to scratch your nose. Now, if you were to go to your search engine and start looking into this topic at any kind of depth, you'd start to see ads popping up for a great number of devices that purport to either read or provide feedback or trainers for your brain. There are a number of products out there on the marketplace that are EEG-placed and more on the way. One that you may have seen is a product called Muse. This one's been around for at least a decade, and it's a sort of crown that you wear on the top of your head. It looks rather like the Wonder Woman crown, last version I saw of it, although I dare say it's gone more Lord of the Rings in the last few years. And it 
helps users improve mindfulness. It's basically a feedback tool that looks for a certain speed of brain waves, theta waves, that are associated with deep meditation and simply gives you an auditory or a visual cue when whatever you're doing is helping you get there. Uh, I did some brainwave uh, biofeedback with an EEG machine way, way back in the 90s here in Santa Cruz, and I found it very helpful in learning, well, how to get into a meditative state. And once you know the road, it's much, much easier to do. So I do credit these biofeedback devices with already providing uh, some utility. There's a company called Next Sense in Mountain View that's developing earbuds that contain EEG sensors. That uh, obviously could give you an auditory feedback and let you know how you're doing with your theta wave production. There are a couple of devices, one Neurable and the other Neurosity, two different companies. I imagine there's a trademark battle in the air if this one takes off. Uh, this aims to increase your productivity by monitoring the brainwaves associated with an attentive state. And obviously, given the absolute tsunami of people who come to, into my office telling me they have ADD nowadays, I, uh, I think that one could, if it works certainly provide a good alternative to drug therapy. A French company called NextMind has got a lightweight EEG sensor that fits around the back of your head, and therefore its electrodes are right above the visual cortex. And then you have a laptop display, and you look at a particular icon on the laptop display, and the device actually can see where you're looking by monitoring the brainwave activity through your skull in your occipital cortex, which is your vision uh, sensing part of the brain. And they've been able to enable users to play games and select items on a screen. Let's see, the company that owns Snapchat bought them in 2022 and is further developing the technology. Haven't seen anything further on that yet, but stay tuned because it's probably coming. A company in Santa Barbara has been working on interfaces dedicated to helping the disabled, and they are ready to release something called the Cognexion One. That's a great name. And it centers on something, uh, on a sort of augmented reality visual interface that's displayed on a visor that sits before the, the person's eyes. And it shows multiple options that the users can select from just staring at a target item. And this is cool. All right. I like this this use of the technology. It doesn't track where your eyeball is looking. Instead, it's blinking these things on the visor, which is a clear visor, and each of the icon is flickering at a different frequency. Now, our eyes fuse at us, you know, somewhere in the mid-20s. We stop seeing the difference, but our brain waves are still reflecting the difference of the targeting. So if you have your target A at uh, just a visible blink, so really fast blink, and then maybe target B uh, is going at 30, and target C is going at 35, and target D is going at 40. Well, the cortical signal is going to go up to 40. It's going to get entrained to 40. That's going to come through in the EEG, and that's going to tell the device that you're looking at target D. It takes a couple of seconds. 
to determine which item a user is selecting. But, you know, I had a fellow in my practice for many years who could only communicate uh, essentially by staring with his eyeballs for a couple of seconds at something. And he had to spell out every word. He had a few stock sentences like, hello, how are you? And thank you very much. Scratch my nose, something like that. But mostly it was a step above having somebody point at a series of letters until the person blinked, which is where the technology was before that. This takes it another order of magnitude ahead. So you write to the brain with a frequency and then you read which frequency the brain has selected. And that gives you an ability to select from a pull-down list effectively. Very interesting innovation. Another company right here in my own neck of the woods, Santa Cruz, called BCI Neurolutions, has gotten FDA approval for its Ipsy Hand system. And this sounds really cool. It's designed to help people who have lost the use of a hand following a stroke on one side of their brain to regain control of that hand. While we think of the right hand as being controlled by the left cortex uh, and vice versa, actually a small portion of the motor cortex on the same side of each hand is capable of controlling that hand. And so if you take out your left uh, motor cortex and you take out your ability to use your right hand, what this company plans to do is accelerate the neuroplasticity in the area of that small right-sided area that connects to the right hand and increase its functionality and allow it to effectively grow more connections such that you can improve functioning in the hand. So basically, it records the EEG signals from the uninjured motor cortex, and then it couples these to a robotic hand that moves the paralyzed hand. And as soon as the patient is really focusing on moving their impaired hand, it picks up on the signal and opens the device and opens and closes the hand. This actually couples movement and tension with actual movement. So you get a much better stimulus for learning and growing the plasticity. So after about six months of using the device, people are able to grasp something and carrying it somewhere without the device attached. So they're actually regaining the ability to control that right hand. And that's very exciting. I think I'm going to reach out to them and see if I can get an interview because I'm sure you'd be interested in learning more about this. My next example of innovations in brain-computer interface uh, comes from a company called Kernel. And this company was interested in learning to really get good high-resolution signals. They were focusing on the resolution aspect and trying to get beyond EEG. And they tried a couple of things. One was uh, using magnets. You've heard of magnetic brain stimulation. Well, what about using slight changes in magnetic waves to read the brain? Well, the problem with that turned out to be interference, just too much EMF floating around, so they couldn't... uh, They couldn't uh, shield the system, the recording system, from all of the magnetic uh, signals being generated by Wi-Fi, EMF, Bluetooth, and et cetera, just not to mention our electronic devices, uh, our lights, our heaters, et cetera. But they hit upon something, a reuse of a technology that already exists in those sophisticated watches 
that can measure your blood oxygenation. And the technology there is called near-infrared spectroscopy. Effectively, what is happening is that the device is firing photons into your skin, and then some of those photons are bouncing back. And depending upon how many bounce back, it can give you an idea of, well, blood oxygen, or in this case, blood flow in the brain. And you can actually bounce photons through the skull fairly easily because while it is thick, it is, well, a bit like pumice. There's quite a lot of uh, spaces in, in there that allow photons to pass, and particularly photons in the infrared range. So they can monitor brain activity by bouncing light off of the blood vessels on top of the brain. And when there is more blood flow to that area, you get change in the bounce back rate of those photons. And that tells you that that is a more active brain area. And they have all sorts of filtering that allow this to work. And it sits on your head like a helmet, looks rather like a very, very sophisticated uh, transformer robot uh, helmet. Uh, I'm sure it will come in many colors. But there is a time delay, and so that makes this for controlling devices maybe not the best strategy, but it does give us a really good way to monitor brain activity and look at what the brain state is. Is there a a commercial space left for this? Well, I guess it will have to beat the EEGs fairly thoroughly and be able to cost uh, a small enough price to make it worthwhile, but I wouldn't bet against the technology, that's for sure. We have a whole crew of humans who are ready to engage in having electrodes implanted in their brains. Epileptics, particularly those with intractable epilepsy, whose choice is to take very heavy drugs, which may or may not keep them from having seizures, or have an electrode implanted into their brain that will sense is attached to one of these sensing electrodes that lie on the surface of the brain. And the minute that you start to see uh, the activity that indicates a localized seizure, the electrode zaps the brain, and essentially it's a bit like defibrillating uh, the heart to get it out of a lethal rhythm. You defibrillate the brain locally to stop the seizure. But having an electrode going through your skull into your brain creates lots of opportunities for infection. A company in New York called Synchron was created by a neurologist and a cardiologist, and they created something new, an object called a stentroid. So it's inspired by the kind of stents that we use in cardiology to open up a blocked blood vessel. It's a tubular metallic mesh of electrodes, and it can be inserted into a cerebral blood vessel. It will adhere to the vessel's sides and actually record the brainwave activity, the population locally, of neurons and their firing in the adjacent brain tissue. So you can get into the brain through these major blood vessels, the carotid artery and the middle cerebral artery, and you can also go in through the veins, and that's a bit easier, and you can get very close to any particular area you want to. So What the CEO, Tom Oxley, says, that's the neurologist, when I move my hand right now, there's a very predictable pattern that's going to be recorded by the surface electrode. And 
this electrode would be able to understand this as a yes or a no, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. This would enable you to control devices. For example, you could you could talk to your phone while your hands were full. <laughs> you could uh, basically, it takes double tracking and triple tracking to a new level. And there are more and more companies coming out with these small surface electrode grids that are placed on the surface of the brain and use effectively minimally invasive surgery. Small incision in the skin, a small drill hole in the bone, slide the folded up electrode to the brain's surface and then power it by a small battery attached to the chest. And the applications here are, of course, really, really intriguing. Will we get to the point of monitoring off of single neurons? There's a company called BlackRock that's trying to do exactly that. In fact, that was the first brain-computer interface to be implanted uh, in humans all the way back in 2005. It's taken them a long time to narrow down the resolution, but uh, they're keeping at it. And again, we're looking at human trials. Neuralink will probably be the first, and it's very well-funded, and of course, that means being able to fund a bunch of lobbyists in Washington. So Neuralink is using threads, fine, flexible polymer electrodes, and these are designed to match the mechanical impedance of the brain. So this can be threaded through neural tissue and pick up signals indefinitely uh, from hundreds, if not thousands, of neurons. Well, it's been trialed in monkeys and when the monkey wants the banana, the robot brings the bananas. So can uh, us human monkeys be uh, far away? Probably not. And I'm anticipating being able to report to you the results of the first human trials sometime next year. They're already ongoing. So brave new world that has such people in it. Can't wait to see what happens next. And if you're interested in what's happening next, come back next week for more Ask Dr. Don. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.